0: Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, coverage of the police and the new difficulties that reporters around the country are having in trying to get information out of police departments. This issue has received a new amount of attention in the last week or so because of a trial in New York City centering around a particularly well-known killing of an African-American man named Eric Garner who was choked on Staten Island by Officer Daniel Pantaleo. And that has raised all kinds of interesting and disturbing questions about the kind of information that's available to the public and how these hearings work. And it's sort of prompting us to think more generally about what is the relationship between a police department like New York's and the press corps that's supposed to cover it. I'm thrilled to be joined by Nick Pinto, who has been covering the NY. For a while, for a range of publications from The Village Voice to The Intercept to Gothamist, now to CJR. Welcome, Nick.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. Um, Nick has got a terrific story up on CJR now about the Eric Garner case and about how hard it is to cover this kind of hearing. Nick, for people who are listening who don't live in New York or who haven't been following the Garner case, just give us quickly a, the sort of the facts about what happened and what happened to the cop at the center of it. Sure. So this
1: is a case from July, the summer of 2014. What happened was the police were called to a block in Staten Island where it was suspected that
0: loose, untaxed cigarettes were being sold on the street. And... And and their claim was that they were getting complaints from residents that what? I mean, why was this an issue that people were selling loose cigarettes? Uh, well, this fits into a, a category that the NYPD calls
1: quality of life offenses, um, and so this this fits into actually some pretty high high flown policing strategy debates: uh, broken windows policing yeah. or quality of life policing, which which holds that if you let this this little rinky dink stuff like this go on, if people are selling loose cigarettes on the street, the next thing you know, uh, there, there's going to be sort of an air of tolerance, and people will start committing more serious crimes. So what you do is you. It seems you...
0: sort of ridiculous on its face when you when you sort of try to unravel it. But no, you're right. I mean, that's, that's the point. Yeah. yeah.
1: Academic scholars of, of policing um, theory have, have gone back and forth on this uh, quite a bit. Um, but it is the strategy that New York has been pursuing for a long time.
0: So this guy, Eric Garner, was selling these in this park in Staten
1: Island. That's the allegation. He'd certainly been um, arrested for doing so right. in the past. Um, and uh, one of the officers who confronted him on the day in question testified recently that he, he had actually uh, stopped him for doing the same thing a few weeks earlier. Right. So what went down there? Eric Garner told the officers that he was not selling cigarettes, um, that in fact he, he'd he just been breaking up a fight on the street, and some of the people with him backed that account up, and he he was quite upset. He said, you guys need to stop bothering me. Um, I'm, I'm tired of this. You're, you're coming at me every day. I'm just asking you to stop. The officers had made the determination that they were going to arrest him that day, um, and so the fact that he he was not coming quietly presented a, a problem for them and after letting him talk it out for for several minutes Daniel Pantaleo one of the two officers who who was there on the scene came up behind him and put him put him in a in a hold from behind the nature of which has been the subject of much debate in the, in this trial certainly on the video that that was published shortly afterwards
0: that was taken by passersby
1: that's right. Yeah, okay. it looks a lot like a, a chokehold. His arm, his arm appears to be around his neck, right. um, and that's a problem because that is specifically against against NYPD rules. It's it's banned in the patrol guide.
0: So he died. He died. But Garner died. Yeah. And, he, then, and then his his
1: last words being uh, uh, "I can't breathe," repeated eleven times.
0: I can't breathe, which became a, uh, a sort of rallying cry, f- and it, and it helped fuel the Black Lives Matter movement in New York and then nationally after that. Certainly. Um, and then, what happened to get us to this this um, administrative disciplinary trial that we're at now? I mean, was there was there a criminal case? No.
1: the um, The Staten Island District Attorney at the time announced that he had been unable to secure an indictment from a grand jury. Which, for skeptics, the saying about grand juries is that prosecutors can get an inj- a, a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. So, so the inexplicable inability to. To secure this indictment struck some as fishy, yeah. um, and then that left the feds and the Justice Department did open an investigation into uh, into this incident, and there was some internal disagreement about what to do about it and whether to per- to pursue that. That situation w- was just sort of languishing, and then Trump was elected, and I think the the suspicion at this point is that that is unlikely to to move forward,
0: yeah. So your piece in CJR re- really uses this case as a kind of jumping off point to look at, at at how the NYPD particularly treats the press which is sort of dismissively and opaquely. We'll get into that in a second. What is your sense of how representative the NYPD is of police departments around the country in terms of um, their dealings with reporters? You know,
1: talking to other uh, police reporters around the country and and I've covered other police departments elsewhere. You know I think there's a, a a certain degree of range there. I think there de- police departments adopt different strategies in how to engage with the press, but I think there is some similarity. I mean police departments are all in a funny moment in in history right now in terms of how their work is considered by the public. The public is sort of in the midst coming out of black lives matter and and the incidents that provoked that we're we're sort of having a conversation about criminal justice and how it works for the first time really in a generation. Um, and so police departments have to have to figure out how they're navigating that. And and a big part of that is how they deal with the press. So some departments certainly adopt a siege mentality, um, and others try to get out ahead of some of these things.
0: So the picture you paint of the NYPD is that it's it's a fairly strained relationship. You've been covering NYPD for a long time. Have you seen it get it worse?
1: No, I wouldn't say that. And I, and I think there are some ways in which it's gotten better. I, I should also say that you know and I make this point in my piece that it's not that the the n y p d is um unhelpful to the press across the board. There's a whole category of of reporting that they're that they're happy to help with mm-hmm. um you know reporters who are really on on the crime beat rather than the cops beat i think I think their interests really align there.
0: you write in this piece this sort of like i mean it seems sort of petty incident that we the last time you covered a department trial was in twenty seventeen and and you had written stories about the department itself that they didn't really like. So, how did they how did they sort of exact revenge on you?
1: Well, you know, I mean, this I, I should preface this by saying that this is my read on it. I'm sure they have a different one, but uh, yeah, you know, I at, at this point I'd written enough enough things sort of poking at, at at some of the spots that I imagine the department is sensitive about that that I I think I was known to them. One of the features of these departmental trials is that they're held in rooms that are. Quite small uh, you know there's there's generally room for about a dozen or fewer journalists, and so you know i I lined up for for this event um and introduced introduced myself to the information officer who was who was sort of running traffic and he asked me to wait, escorted the other journalists into the room and escorted an entire classroom on a on a on a school field trip of kids uh into the room and then and then turned to me and, and sort of cheerfully apologized
0: that that there, there was not room and sent me on my way, yeah. But how much of it is publicly available? How much of it is available in hindsight?
1: None of the underlying documents related to this case are publicly available. The charges are not publicly available. There was a, a pretrial motion to dismiss. Those motion, That motion was not available. The r- response was not available. The judge's ruling on it w- is not available transcripts of, of the proceedings are not available. If you're not in the room, you're not going to know what happened. Mm-hmm. It, it vanishes into history. And at the end of these proceedings, the judge will, will make a non-binding recommendation on, on what ought to happen to Pantaleo. That recommendation will be secret, and that recommendation goes to the police commissioner himself, who will make a final determination, and that final determination will also be secret.
0: So we may never know the outcome of this of this hearing. Well, the, I mean
1: the 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 worst the very worst thing that can happen to to Pantaleo at this point is that he loses his job. And if that were to happen, he would drop off the city payroll, which uh-huh. is managed by a different department, and we might find out by asking them it, whether what if he ever loses his job, but we probably won't hear it from the police.
0: So, this isn't even available via FOIA afterwards if we wanted to find out the results of this, we there, we couldn't get it that way.
1: No, that's right. The reason for all of this in this particular case, uh, I, I, think, I think the NYPD would tell you that this is not how, how they would choose to do things, that their hands are tied and that they're bound by Section 50A of the, of the New York State Civil Rights Law, which is a law that uh, exempts the, personal, the personnel records of police officers as well as corrections officers and, and firefighters from public disclosure. Uh, and and so this law has, has really come into sharp focus in in recent years when it was originally passed in 76 I think it was it was generally understood that it, it was there basically to protect police officers who were who were testifying as witnesses in cases from defense lawyers sort of trolling their their personal records for the time they were caught drunk driving off duty and using that to just embarrass them on the stand or, or something like that but since its adoption and and especially recently the interpretation of its scope has really expanded significantly to the extent that last winter uh, a New York appeals court actually ruled that 58 dictates that even aggregated and anonymized records of police discipline have to be kept secret from the public which mm-hmm. which effectively means that the people of New York City are unable to know anything about about how their police department is making sure that you know they're not just infested and overrun by bad cops
0: mm-hmm. You 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 point out in this piece the relationship between Bill de Blasio and the police department early on in his term in 2014 and how because of some comments that he made that cops were actually turning, literally turning their back on him at a couple of police funerals, right? That's right. Is it your suspicion that this sort of like there's no push from the top to sort of try to force more openness on the part of the NYPD because de Blasio, that's a fight that de Blasio just doesn't want to take on?
1: I think that is a pretty widespread impression. I think I think City Hall would certainly dispute that. For example, there is a a movement right now to repeal 50A mm-hmm. or there there's a bill uh, passing through the state legislature in Albany to to do that. Um there's a, there's another bill also in committee um to to specifically narrow its scope. But when you talk to the advocates who are who are really driving the push to pass that legislation they're they're incredibly disappointed with with the leadership from from city officials to to push for that change um which really would be required to to get this over the hill in in Albany
0: and who 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 is leading the effort to sort of open this up is it sort of just civil liberties and open access yeah it's group? a it, it's a it's a mishmash it's uh,
1: it, it's civil liberties groups it's a uh, it's groups concerned with police violence mm-hmm. um and, and police accountability. The the New York State agency concerned with open government um has has been just banging on the walls about 50 A for years mm-hmm. and saying that this, you know, this this runs counter to every principle of open government that right. you know that we could hope to pursue.
0: And and the complaint is just that de Blasio hasn't shown any interest in making any kind of using any political capital on this. Right. So the, there's a bigger the bigger question here. I should
1: I should say, in, in fairness to the mayor, I mean, he he has he has gone on the record saying we need we need to uh, reform this law. Right. But um, that's that's been about the extent of it. Right.
0: How do you articulate or how do you think through the arguments in favor of all of this secrecy around policing? Like, let's just put on our devil's advocate hat and think through, like, what is the idea here? Is it that and you 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 sort of make an interesting analogy um, in your piece to a to a scene in a few Good Men about like a lot of bad stuff has to happen to keep us all safe and you know we all know we all, it's a dirty secret that we all live with and accept and mm-hmm. let's not pretend otherwise basically but is that really it keeping the press which means keeping the public out of understanding what's going on here just that it this is messy sausage making stuff and you just have to trust us to do what's right in your name.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the most complicated aspects of, of, of all of this. The, the, the few good men analogy is not mine. It's actually it, it comes out of one of the NYPD command's Twitter accounts actually mm-hmm. t- t- tweeted out the speech a couple of years ago and, and it was probably taken down. But but I think it does articulate an argument that you hear from Pat Lynch, the president of the Police Benevolent Association, all the time, which which is basically, um, yeah, that, that, you know, Cops are the guys who you send out to enact the policies um, that that you guys have made up in your fancy offices, and uh, you know certainly in in New York, a city where the drive to reduce crime is just relentless and is is cheered on by a very powerful business lobby and and an extremely powerful real estate lobby, which I think processes of gentrification and and all of the money that 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 generates for them. Um, is pretty is pretty closely related to to how neighborhoods get policed. Yeah, so there are powerful political forces at play that are that are really demanding um a kind of aggressive policing and particularly um a policing of these sorts of quality of life uh, offenses like selling loose cigarettes on the street. And so and so I think the police unions uh feeling and I and I think they represent certainly some number of the rank and file officers is that, listen, you guys ask us to, you know, to go clean up the streets and and get rid of the guys selling loose cigarettes. What do you think that looks like? We lay on hands. You know, if they don't want to go, we're going to, we're going to make them go. Uh, And so, and so, you know, how dare you then turn around when, you know, when, when it shows up on video and, and, and get offended. Yeah. Yeah, You hear
0: the same from military people too.
1: Totally. And, and, you know, as, as I say, I'm not, I'm not totally unsympathetic to parts of that argument, because I do, I do think that it is both lazy and irresponsible to say that the only problem here is either individual bad cops or, or um, you know, the, the the department has gone rogue. I think I think we have to acknowledge the degree to which everyone, all the way down, is is enacting policies that that our government has set and that and that we've basically asked them to do. And and I think that's why transparency is so important. Because I think New Yorkers need to be able to see what the consequences of those policies are and really, and really reckon with their accountability for, for what that looks like.
0: One, one more thing I'm curious about. Um, I mean, you spent a lot of your career writing a lot about policing, but doing it as a freelancer as opposed to a police beat reporter. I, I mean, my, I've never been a police beat reporter, but my sense of it is is that being a, that, that it's really hard to beat, to to stay on the police beat and get the things you need for your sort of day-to-day coverage, while, and also doing the kind of really critical, aggressive reporting on the sort of misdoings of the, of these departments, and it sort of sets up a system where maybe there's maybe this stuff isn't being covered as aggressively as it should because of the kind of beat sweetening system. And again, I'm not accusing any particular journalist of doing anything, but I'm just wondering if institutionally the police beat is particularly sort of ripe for that kind of like system where the the beat reporters feel particularly sort of uneasy about taking on the cops i
1: think the
0: I think the police beat
1: is like a lot of beats, you know you sort of have to choose if you 're going to pursue an inside game in an outside or an outside game right. and and there are there are things that each of those paths can deliver that the other one can't yeah you know I will say that there are people who uh, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how they do it, but I but I think there are people who who are effectively running an inside game who you know who are who are really well sourced who are operating out of out of the shack the the press room in um, police headquarters who, who who do do great work. Um, uh-huh. uh, Rocco Pasconderola at uh, the Daily News is great. Graham Raymond at the Daily News uh-huh. is is great. You know Len Levitt is a is a classic example of of someone who had an incredibly contentious relationship with the NYPD while you know, maintaining incredible sourcing and, and, and sort of having a good relationship with people in the building. Mm. So it can be done. It's not, it's, it, it hasn't been the way I've approached it.
0: Right. Well, this is totally interesting. Um, Nick, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks nice so much for having me. You. you can read Nick's story on CJR.org today and check us out for everything else that's going on at the Columbia Journalism Review and have a great holiday weekend.